0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Well, good morning. My name is Kevin Evans. I'm one of the elders here, and I'm grateful you're here today. Um, I grew up in a home where my parents took our family to church most every Sunday, but as a disinterested boy... um, I was totally disinterested in what was happening, and I remember that the favorite words of the pastor's sermon each week to me were, finally, in conclusion, yes, finally. So I think probably many people feel that way about my sermons these days, and we're going to put that to the test in about one hour. We'll see how you're doing. But no one felt that way about the sermons of Jesus. I mean, people were enthralled with every word he spoke, and nowhere is that more true than in his famous Sermon on the Mount, which we've studied these past several months, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he prepared his disciples for that sermon with the most profound statement he made. This would be in Matthew 4, verse 17, when Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is at hand which meant that the kingdom of heaven had now arrived on earth in the person of Jesus. This had been the long-anticipated defining moment of God's plan to redeem sinful humanity and renew a broken world. And Jesus came as that humble servant king to inaugurate this new spiritual kingdom on earth. And everyone who would trust him and surrender to his gracious rule would be welcomed into that kingdom. And one day he will come again to fully establish that kingdom and make all things new on this earth. So in his Sermon on the Mount, track with me here, he's describing the kind of flourishing life he makes possible for those who trust him and follow his rule. For example, Matthew 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. That's known as the golden rule. Probably everyone here has heard of it at some point in your life. It's even part of our culture. And it's based on the Old Testament law, Leviticus 19.18, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now can you imagine if people, practice that day by day. I mean, what a change that would bring to our church, right, to our community, to families, to governments, to societies, to nations. In my experience, it's been a bit difficult to love my neighbor as myself. I mean, it works fine for me as long as my neighbor is polite and thankful for what i do is not too needy and will fully repay whatever i give him then it's fine for me to love my neighbor but apart from that i'm inadequate i mean what would it take for us to become a people who truly love our neighbors as ourselves it would, would take, it would take nothing less than the empowering presence of king jesus who by his grace and truth comes and transforms our hearts so that from the inside out we have that genuine love. And so as he brings this golden rule to the forefront, the main content of Jesus' sermon is over. And now he begins his conclusion. And as you look at that, you see his, his tone begins to change. He begins to speak with more urgency. It's like a best friend pleading with you, I need to get with you right now. Theologian Frederick Brunner comments on this transition. He says... Jesus began his sermon with unqualified tenderness, embracing in his blessings those who felt least embraceable. He now concludes the sermon with unqualified toughness, warning that his sermon is not an intellectual option, not a set of suggestions we may take or leave, not one philosophy of life among others. No, the warnings make explicit that Jesus believes his person and teaching are the exclusive way to life. So how will Jesus conclude his sermon? What will be his closing points? Let's take a look again at Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus ends his sermon with these series of contrasts, right? I mean, two types of gates the wide gate or the narrow gate. Two types of ways or roads, we could say the easy road or the hard road. Two groups of people, the many or the few. Two destinies, either destruction or life. There are two types of trees, the healthy tree or the diseased tree. Two types of fruits, good fruit, fruit, bad fruit. After that, he'll continue and conclude with the two types of followers, the true and the false. Two types of builders, the wise and the foolish. And two types of foundations, rock or sand. So what's the point Jesus is trying to make with all of these contrasts? He's setting before us the only two ways to live. The, ways that the two ways that you live your life before God. And so he urgently calls us to respond because one way leads to eternal life, but the other way leads to destruction and death. So let's take a closer look Verse 13, 14, we're going to consider three questions. First of all, what is the narrow gate? Secondly, what kind of person takes the wide gate? And finally, how do you enter the narrow gate? So first, what is the narrow gate? There are two gates that open onto two roads. One is wide, one is narrow. Which sounds best to you? If you've ever uh, been pressed into an already crowded elevator, you know the need you feel for space, yes? Maybe you've gone to a stadium event and it's halftime or it's intermission and everyone wants to go to the restroom at the same time and you press in there and you feel, I just need a little privacy, (laughs) right? I mean, we would all choose the, the spacious area, the wide space, it's plenty of room, No one likes to be crowded, right? The wide gate and easy road is very appealing. People that take it, and many people do, they leave outstanding reviews. They say it's it's smooth, it's comfortable, it's pleasant, not too difficult or demanding. But unexpectedly, the destination is tragic because it leads to destruction. So Jesus commands us to enter by the narrow gate. Now that word narrow, it's surprising Jesus would would use that word. You'd think he would say um, something broad and spacious because in the Bible, wide and broad and spacious always communicated positive things. It was always a sign of God's blessing and abundance and freedom he would provide. For example, Exodus 3, verse 8, the promised land was called a broad and spacious land. Psalm 31, verses 7 and 8, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and set my feet in a broad place. 2 Samuel 22, verse 37, you gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. So why would Jesus use a negative word like narrow, to convey a positive truth. Well, to understand that, we need a, a little better understanding of the historical setting. In ancient cities like in Palestine, like Jerusalem, they would be surrounded by thick stone walls for protection from enemy invaders. And the only way in or the only way out would be through one of these few major gates here's a picture of the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem. So to enter Jerusalem, crowds would enter through that wide gate and would open onto the main avenue in the city. That's where you'd see the street vendors selling their goods and kids playing and tax collectors extorting money, all of the typical life in the city. And when you would leave a city, you would also have to leave through, pass through one of these wide gates. And once you're on that Through that gate, you're on the road to wherever it's leading. The Damascus Damascus gate led, guess where? Damascus. Damascus, thank you. Yes, exactly. So the only way in, the only way out would be through one of these major gates. So the gate would be, we could say, the entrance to the road. So the gate you chose to pass through would determine the road you're on. So when Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate determines a destiny. A narrow gate's the antithesis of the wide gate that nearly everyone else uses. One scholar suggested that the narrow gate would be uh, the extremely small passageway that had been chiseled between huge limestone rocks that comprised the city wall. So you can picture alternatively this image of a narrow gate A narrow gate would be concealed, it would be slender, it would be just a gap in the wall, and only a very determined pedestrian could force himself through. And in fact, if you did press through a narrow gate, you would inevitably be scraped and bruised because no one made their way through a narrow gate without bleeding. Obviously, only one person at a time could squeeze through, and it would be impossible to bring anything or anyone along with you. And narrow gates were easy to miss. You could walk past it and never notice it. And even if you did know the location, why would anyone choose a narrow gate? Pressing through the narrow gate and the hard way will require a person to strive, to suffer, to agonize, to groan, which sounds like the first time I tried on skinny jeans. (laughs) Don't visualize that. Entering the narrow gate will be painful. It will be lonely because only a few find it. It will be difficult. In fact, it seems impossible. Yet, it is only the narrow gate that leads to life. So secondly, what kind of person would take the wide gate? Because we might think the wide gate, that's for the bad people. That's for the immoral people, the rebellious, the defiant, the people who care nothing about God and don't care about their fellow man either. And we would think that the narrow gate, now that's for the good people. That's for those who strive to do the right thing. They're self-disciplined. They're good citizens. They try to keep the golden rule. And interestingly, everyone thinks they're one of the good people. <laughs> Somehow we all think we're good. And we might admit okay, sometimes I'm impatient, lose my temper with my children. Occasionally I leave work earlier than I should. And I rarely come to a complete stop at stop signs. Anyone want to confess that? You're in church. But I'm still better than most people. I always tip the barista. When I walk my dog, I pick up the poop. Once a year, I give to the local food pantry. I am a good person. I am above average. And as long as you live to earn your own way, you'll believe you deserve God's approval. But throughout the sermon, Jesus has not been contrasting the good people with the bad people. Matthew chapter 6, he's contrasting Not good people give, bad people don't. Not good people pray, bad people don't. Not good people fast, and bad people don't. He's taught that there's two types of people, and they're both giving, praying, and fasting. But one of those people, one of those types of people, did it only to be seen and praised by others. They're giving, they're praying, they're fasting. It was just for selfish reasons. So the wide gate, it's not only for the bad people, it's also filled with good people. When you think you have to prove your worth by your goodness, all of life becomes a competition. You feel pressure to do better, to keep up, to prove you belong. And that can happen even in a church community. When I was a new Christian, I began attending a weekly Bible study and it would always end with, um, the leader would choose a few people to close in prayer. And so I'd only been a few times and on one occasion the leader asked me to pray and I had never prayed publicly before. Wasn't even confident to pray silently, privately. So I was just suddenly nervous, intimidated, had the sweaty palms and shaky voice, and I did my best to try to imitate some of the things and words that I had heard others do. I made a tense face to show my passionate faith in God. I adjusted my voice because after all you're talking to God, you've got to use your best holy voice. I gave that my best effort, and Then I muttered a few cliches that I had heard others say. When I felt I'd said about all I could say and done all I could do, I I just dutifully brought it to an end. And I was relieved. And then the next person began to pray. And rather than supporting him in prayer in my heart, I began to listen to evaluate his prayer. And I thought, you know, (laughs) my prayer was better than his. And then the next one, ooh, his prayer was much better than mine. Why didn't I say that? You see, I was beginning a mental list of ranking the quality of each person's prayer to understand how I measured up in the, in the ranking, in the list. The closing prayer had just become another competition for me to win. My good work of prayer was done for me to make myself look good. Do you see any of those tendencies in your life? The activities in which you participate, the posts you make on social media, you're, you're ranking the goodness and value of your life in comparison to others? Blaise Pascal said, God is none other than the savior of our wretchedness. So we can only know God well by knowing our iniquities. Therefore, those who have known God without knowing their wretchedness have not glorified him, but have glorified themselves. Jesus called these kinds of people false prophets. They come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, in the context Scholars would say that Jesus was either referring to the Pharisees who he regularly confronted about their self-righteousness or perhaps Matthew's purpose of of the early church where Judaizers had already infiltrated and were pushing legalism. It could have been either one of those two, but I think there's a little bit of false prophet in all of us. It's the tendency to keep up the appearance as a happy, successful little lamb but inwardly consumed with a wolf-like comparison with others. Envious of others who have the life you want. Whether it's their vacations, or their looks, or their address, perhaps their marriage or family, their income, their title, their number of followers, their position of influence, And we so easily become judgmental, critical, believing that we deserve more than they have. And you know what is at the core of all that? It's a frustration with God that God is not giving me the life I think I deserve because I'm a good person and I deserve better. As a result... You're not free to love your neighbor as yourself because you're competing to earn your way and prove your worth. This is the ugly side of our depravity. It reveals a diseased tree and the bad fruit that comes from it. Such is the life on the wide gate and easy road. It seems so appealing at first, doesn't it? It just seems so inviting, but it progressively crushes you with anxiety and emptiness. But in his rescuing grace, King Jesus calls to us, commands us, leave that wide road. Enter through the narrow gate. How do we do that? How do you enter the narrow gate? Simply put, repent and believe. Believe. Repent not only of the bad things you've done, but also of the good things you've done with selfish motives. Because the narrow gate is only for the people who recognize their goodness cannot save them. As you remember, the narrow gate, it's extremely small. There's only room for one person at a time to squeeze through. It's impossible to bring anything or anyone with you. Pressing through that narrow gate means you have to leave behind everything you're depending on to give your life meaning, worth, value. Later this week, our family will have our version of a family reunion, and I'm very excited about it. It'll be our four adult children, their spouses, and our six grandchildren, ages six, four, three, 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 and one. So it's a great time in life. And we all get together at our house and we, we play and we laugh and we eat and we talk and it's just so enjoyable. And I'm especially fond of the times when I get to play with our, our little grandchildren and to feel their, their little arms squeezing my neck and to hear one of them say, Grandpa, I love you. I mean, especially when I've not insisted they just tell me that. I just really love that experience. But as our children have grown up and now the last one has moved on, this transition has been emotionally very difficult for me. It's exposed a a painful insecurity in me, realizing that although my family relationships are a very good thing God has given, I've attached a significant portion of my value and meaning to them. I'm depending on them for a sense of identity and worth. And so in some way, I have to recognize that the closeness and quality of my family relationships do not define me. As they've moved on, I have to to find something more stable, lasting, eternal to rest in. Entering the narrow gate requires this of us. You have to let go. You have to let go of everything and everyone you're depending upon to give your life meaning, to make you feel significant, to make you feel secure, because you cannot bring anything with you through the narrow gate. Entering the narrow gate forces you to recognize the agonizing and painful truth about your depravity. It forces you to recognize your spiritual poverty. Yet on the other side of that narrow gate and hard road, there is life. How do we know that? Because Jesus went through the narrowest of gates to save us. Though he was the infinite God who created and sustained the universe... He voluntarily was compressed to become a human and enter our sinful world. Through his death on the cross, Jesus was crushed for our sins. Because he pressed through the narrow gate for us in his death and resurrection, he has made a way for all who believe to enter into his kingdom of spacious grace. I love what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 9. I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and come out and find pasture. Pasture. (laughs) It seems so narrow on the way in, but once you're through, it's broad and full of life. Entering that narrow gate is a faith relationship of love with Jesus. Jesus Christ is the narrow gate and the hard road. He himself is the life. It's not a a list of things to do. It's not an achievement you have to pursue. He is a person, and he wants you to relate to him and depend on him. In exclusion to everything and everyone else. I am the way. He says, through believing in and receiving King Jesus, we have forgiveness. He brings freedom from that crushing burden of always trying to prove yourself. We just rest in his goodness and his worth without any pressure to produce our own. Life in the kingdom of heaven involves a daily renewal. In other words, you have to visit that gate over and over and over again. You have to come back there and recognize what have I begun to cling to again? What am I depending on again to give me value, security, and significance? And let go of everything other than Jesus. It is striving continually striving on the hard road of resting entirely on his grace. But the result is so worth it. (laughs) That place of spacious, flourishing life with King Jesus in his unchanging love. That's what I want for all of us. Let's pray together. And I hope that you have some sense of God urging you to let go. To let go of those things you're depending on to make you feel important and secure and happy. To, to let go of those things, those relationships that have become too important, replacing God in your heart. Lord, I pray now that by your Spirit, You will enable us to trust you and to let go as we enter into you, the narrow gate, to let go of those things, those relationships in order that we might discover the true, flourishing kingdom life of grace. This is what you died and rose again to provide for us. A moment by moment never-ending love relationship with you, where we discover more and more and more of the riches and the depths of your sufficient grace. You are enough, Lord. And I pray now for any person here that has never entered that narrow gate of a relationship with you, that this moment they would say, yes, Jesus. I surrender to you. Lord, may you lead us continually to be your kingdom people and shine your grace to the world. In your name we pray, amen.